Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 7 of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in East Nashville, Tennessee. I'm so glad you've chosen to join me once again as we take some deep dives with a cast of wonderful musicians, producers, and engineers that I've managed to track down and speak to about making music, records, and just doing what they do in their lives and music. Don't forget there's a link to a playlist on Spotify and Apple Music with links to many of the songs we discuss on today's episode. You'll find links to those playlists in the show notes below or at our website. Meanwhile, the show continues to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription, which is a monthly payment of your choice. And when you sign up for Patreon, you get an ad-free version of the show to listen to, as well as getting entered to win a cunning prize pack from our sponsors at the end of the season. Or if you're tight for dough and you still want to help out, you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just by spreading the word, sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, a huge thanks to the sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know I sent you. They are Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra 1964, The Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resophonic Guitars, and The Henhouse Hang. All right, thanks so much to you for tuning in, and let's get down to it. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome back to the show. This is episode number 153, and my guest this week is the incredible banjo player, composer, and co-owner of Compass Records, Allison Brown. Thanks for tuning in to everybody out there. And as you know, I sure appreciate you joining me. I just got back from a little day trip excursion to Muscle Shoals, which has been somewhere where I've wanted to go my entire life. And I've lived in Nashville now for 10 years and I've never made the trek. It's only like a two hour drive. And I was lucky enough to get shown around um, the two legendary studios, Fame and Muscle Shoals Sound. They are two absolute temples of American recorded music. Everything from Aretha Franklin to Percy Sledge and Wilson Pickett and Clarence Carter, Joe Tex, up through Leonard Skinner and Bobby Gentry and the Rolling Stones. Man, the list just goes on. And the players that played on all those records, those the Swampers, you know, Jimmy Johnson, Roger Hawkins, David Hood, Spooner Oldham. Come on, the best. And both those studios, you know, they're humble little places. There's absolutely nothing fancy about them. Luckily for us music nerds, they essentially remain untouched today. Not totally untouched, but kind of untouched. They're a bit of a time capsule. So it's well worth seeking them out if you're ever anywhere nearby this area or that area of northern Alabama. Man, it's something else. And it also sort of ties into today's guest as well, because Allison, along with her husband, Gary West, own and operate Compass Records out of their studio down on Music Row here in Nashville. 
And that room that Compass works out of now seems to somehow get overlooked a bit in the scheme of things. But for me, it's a totally magical place. It's the ex-home of the Glazer brothers who basically started the whole outlaw country thing in the 70s. They made Waylon Jennings records there, Willie Nelson, and the studio got to be known as Hillbilly Central. Also, one of my favorite albums of all time is John Hartford's steam-powered aerial plane, and it was recorded there too. I love going in that place. I've done a couple live things in there over the years, and it's got a total vibe to it. And for this interview, Allison asked if I'd come down and do it there. So I was happy to oblige. And that is where you will hear us talking today. So in other news, we've announced the Hen House Hang again for 2024, and that's going to be three days in person hanging out while a real session goes on, and we're going to be teaching all about recording uh, roots and Americana-style music. But I'm also going to be doing another Hen House Hang in March that will be focused just on mixing. I don't know if people are going to be interested, but we've started it up, and it'll be a two-day thing over the weekend of March 23rd to 24th. There's going to be six people max, and it's just going to be going like a deep dive into the mixing process with me here at the Hen House in East Nashville. If you book before December 5th, we're offering 10% off. So jump on that if you're into it. And you can get info on that and the full-on Hen House Hang, the September one, over at stevedawson.ca. Off the front page there is plenty of info and easy ways to sign up. And finally, just an update on our end-of-season giveaway. Our good friends at Spectre 1964, who sponsor this show, have jumped in, and they are offering up one of their insanely cool BBDIs. It is an excellent DI that I use all the time, and we're going to be giving one of those away, as well as a bunch of pedals from Union Tube and Transistor. It's a heck of a prize, and there's going to be some swag from other companies as well. Um, Deering is throwing something this way. I don't know what exactly yet. Deering banjos. And um, hopefully a little something from Mule Resonators too. So there's going to be some stuff floating around. All you have to do is be a Patreon subscriber for the show. It helps us out, helps the show going, helps with our overhead, and you get in automatically on the prize drawing, which will be at the end of this season coming up in a few weeks. So you can sign up for that over at the Music Makers and Soul Shakers website at makersandshakerspodcast.com. And I'd like to shout out to a couple of people who signed up to Patreon and or donated a one-time donation to the show this week. And they are William Roggensack, cool name, and Boom Baker, another cool name. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate that. All right, on to this week's show. Alison Brown is a Grammy-winning banjo player, composer, and producer. She's made a bunch of great albums under her own name, but she's also been a side person and collaborator with artists like Alison Krauss, Michelle Schacht, Stuart Duncan. She started playing as a kid, first on dobro and then switched over to banjo. She claims to be a terrible dobro player, but I, I have my suspicions that she could probably rip on that thing. She spent her early years cutting her teeth at bluegrass festivals and at Magic Mountain, which is sort of a theme park in California. And a lot of bluegrassers that I've talked to got their start either at a place like that or pizza parlors where a lot of uh, bluegrass was happening around California in the 70s and 80s. Anyway, Allison veered away from music in the 80s. She got her MBA from UCLA and was working full on in finance. And full props to her realized that she didn't want to be doing that anymore and split from her steady day job to the way more lucrative and solid world of bluegrass banjo, which might seem a little nutty, but 
I fully endorse that decision. She joined Union Station with Alison Krauss in the late 80s, and she's never looked back. That band won a Grammy in 1990, and... Then after that, she joined the band and was the band leader for Michelle Shocked, which is a very cool gig in, indeed. Um, Allison started her own quartet, and she's been recording albums with them since the early 90s. Her label, Compass Records, has grown to be one of the leading labels of Roots music in the world. Her and her husband, Gary West, run the whole thing out of the office and studio that I mentioned down on Music Row. Her latest record is called On Banjo, and it's a great example of her killer playing, but also her composing and arranging skills. It features guests like Steve Martin, Sierra Hull, Sharon Isbin, and the Kronos Quartet, which I love, and explores styles like Brazilian choro music and bossa nova, as well as bluegrass and old-time music. You can keep up with what she's up to and get all her tour dates at alisonbrown.com. That's Allison with one L, alisonbrown.com. So with that, coming to you from Hillbilly Central, the offices of Compass Records on Music Row in Nashville, Tennessee. Enjoy my conversation with Allison Brown. Can you tell me a little bit about working with him, Bobby Osborne? Like, uh, was he was he one of your bigger influences or like just sort of a presence in the world of bluegrass that you were influenced by? Like, what was his impact on you as a musician? Um, his impact's been more in recent years than it was initially, mm -hmm. although the song Rocky Top was one of the first things I yeah. heard in bluegrass music and probably one of the only things I ever tried to sing. Really? Um, yeah, at a gig at Magic Mountain when I was 14 years old. So I've, I've known Bobby's voice ever since I really started playing this music. But I think that I knew just enough about him, but not so much that I was too intimidated mm -hmm. to even broach the topic of working together. Yeah. And he was in here in our studio and I was producing a record for Peter Rowan called The Old School in like around 2014 or so. And Bobby was just singing and playing so great. And he said to me afterwards, Allison, I just feel like I don't belong here anymore, like in this spiritual plane. And I was like, how, really? how can that be? So I have to do something about that. So I you know, kind of tried to stitch everything together so that we could make a record. And he was, he said a lot of times, you know, making that record saved my life. Wow. He really thought he wasn't going to get another chance. That's heavy. And he still had a lot to say as an, as an artist. Yeah. And he was um, incredibly generous too. just never hesitated to, you know, give you a pat on the back. Yeah. Had he made a record in the last, like within the 10 years before that? I'm not sure. I bet that he had. He did a couple of solo records after Sonny retired, and he yeah. had his band with um, his son, Bodge, the Rocky Top Express. Right. And so I would think that he did. I can't remember what the year was of the previous release, but this record, I really just wanted to give as many people in the bluegrass community a chance to like have their Bobby time. That's cool. So it was a pretty broad cast of collaborators. Yeah. You know, everyone from Sierra Hall and Sam Bush and, you know, Ronnie and Robbie McCurry and Del McCurry and... Vince Gill's on the record, and Molly Tuttle. I mean, so I want to obviously talk about your new record, but just on that on that subject because it sounds so fascinating. Did you do it here? Yes, right in this very room. Can we talk about this room for a second? Because sure. every time I come in here, I'm just like, oh my god, I can't believe this nutty place. Because this too. is <laughs> like so much crazy stuff was done here. Can you just give me a little rundown on how long you've been running it, what it is, and just like the kind of the a quick rundown of the crazy history. <laughs> sure, I will, I'll do. I'll do my best. So we've been in this building for eighteen years. Okay, um, 
We were incredibly fortunate to, to get to buy this place. It was the former headquarters of the Glazer Brothers. Yeah. And they this was the launching pad for the outlaw movement in country music. So basically the first record in country music to sell a million copies, half of it was recorded in this room. And um, John, Tom Paul Glazer told Gary West, my partner and husband, that he built this room to sound like the inside of a Martin D18. No way. I love that. I love that too. I don't know what it means, but <laughs> it kind of looks like the inside of a D18. It does look a little bit like one. It's definitely, you know, it's a really versatile room. It's a great sounding room we've done. Yeah. You know, when I was recording Peter Rowan, we were set up like with just acoustic band in a circle yeah. recording that way, but we've done full rhythm section stuff and horns and everything. Do you guys keep like you've got piano up grand here and a mm-hmm. kit set up do those things stay permanently are you kind of always set up for a band in here or pretty much it kind of depends on our, the situation my touring quartet has drums and piano and so we're always okay. like trying to grab rehearsals in here so right. the drums and piano are pretty much of a fixture even when we have a bluegrass band in here we just push that stuff out of the way so what was that first record you were talking about what wh- which record is that wanted the outlaws oh okay yeah willie nelson records were made in here Right. I believe so. And Waylon Jennings recorded Dream in My Dreams in here. Amazing. He was apparently standing about where I'm sitting so he could look in the control room. Okay. See the engineers. So that's what we're told. Yeah. So it's kind of the sacred spot. And but Hartford did. Hartford uh, did Steam Powered Aeroplane. Amazing. Which is one that we didn't become aware of until after we owned the building. Really? And we were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. That's the one for me where I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. That was done in here. I can't believe it. Completely. That's the one for me too. I yeah. mean, wow. Yeah. Amazing. But yeah, the. Yeah, the royalties from publishing Gentle on My Mind, um, which the Glazer Brothers published when nobody else would, is what um, financed the Glazer Brothers to create the studio. Amazing. So John Hartford's presence is still very much here, I feel. Yeah. Um, have you guys changed anything? Um, well, it's a Pro Tools studio these days, but everything, you know, no. But like physically, physically it, this no. is exactly how it is. This is how pretty much exactly how it is. And Amazing. from old pictures, we can see that's yeah. pretty much exactly how it was. We haven't changed anything. Oh, my God. That's yeah. so cool. We're, yeah, we feel super lucky to have this So what place. are some of the little secrets about this room that you like, as a, both as a producer or as an artist? Like, is there a spectacularly best place to play the banjo in or anything like hmm. that? That's a good question. Um, I don't know if there's a spectacularly best place, <laughs> but where you're sitting is one I've sat in oh, yeah. <laughs> for many hours. I'm in your spot. Noam Pekilny sat in that spot, too, when he was recording, uh, I think it was Beat the Devil and Carry a Rail, or okay. one of the records he did for us. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, but it is incredibly versatile. It's, we've had a lot of singers where you are, too. Yeah. I've sat in many ISO booths, including the junk booth over by Olivia Oh, the junk Olivia booth. there. Okay. Yeah. So there's sort of like one, there's the junk booth, mm-hmm. and then there's, like, what? Is that just another corner of the control room, or is that no, another booth? No, it's an ISO. So oh, we've okay. got the two ISOs off the control room by the piano, and then uh, one ISO off the control room, and then two off the piano room. Yeah. There. So really four ISO rooms if we clean out the junk booth so that was sort of going on here in the 70s and then like what was happening here in the say like the like the early 90s what was what was what was this place so it was the battery studio oh okay and was that was still a fully functional still a fully functional studio and when we bought the building i believe the dream hire was using this as like maybe as a cartage space Uh gary would know all the history better than i do but that's what i recall but what's really odd is that we actually recorded a track for my third record which is called look left here yeah. in 1990 
90, maybe? I mean, yeah. a long time ago. Uh, it was a record I made for Vanguard, and there was this Aboriginal didgeridoo player here from Australia. And of course, like, I'm really into doing eclectic things, so I wrote a tune to record with Alan Dargan. And he was significant to us because his record was the first record we ever put out on Compass, Compass before Compass was Compass. We were called Small World Music back oh, really? then. Okay. And we'd just been down in Australia touring with Michelle Schacht yeah. and met these two brothers that had a little independent label called Natural Symphonies. And just as a testament to how different the industry was back then, that would have been in 1992. <laughs> yeah, a whole um, different world. We had dinner a couple times and they were like, well, why don't you guys distribute our label in the United States? You yeah. want to start a label, right? And so on that huge leap of faith, um, that was how we launched our company. And the wow. first record we put out on another huge leap of faith was a didgeridoo record, which is brilliant. No kidding. Yeah, Alan Dargan. And um, the first track on that is... Uh, called Virtuoso Didge, and I had never heard didgeridoo played like that. It's like one minute, 37 seconds long, and it's incredible. One breath. It's amazing. Yes, <laughs> one breath. So yeah. Alan was here in Nashville, and I wanted to record something with him, and we needed a studio, so we hired the battery, and then okay. lo and behold, that would have been... So how did it yeah. come up that this place was available? Uh, well, you know, we used to, back 18, 20 years ago, Gary used to go tooling around Music Row with, uh, yeah. with uh, Dane Bryant. And, uh, you know, look at different things and dream. And yeah. one day he was doing that and the studio was still on the market. And I think people had tried to acquire it to turn it into a restaurant, but there wasn't enough parking, something mm -hmm. like that. So it was preserved for us. And, and um, Dane said, well, I think it's about time to insult someone with an offer. <laughs> wow. And so we did. So how long was it vacant? Like, how long was nothing happening in here? You know, I'm not exactly sure of that, but I, if I had to guess, I would say a couple of years. Okay. Wow. And so you were kind of looking for somewhere that could be an office as well as a recording studio. Yeah, that's always kind of been the dream is kind of like the idea of like a vertical integration. Right. right. Just kind of like do it all. create it here mm -hmm. and then send it downstairs. And so what's downstairs? Uh, our compass offices. Oh, OK. Yeah. So we've got, you know, basically full s label services downstairs. Yeah. So sales and marketing and yeah. promotion, all that stuff. And do you guys get harassed every day by realtors wanting to <laughs> tear this building down? <laughs> no, that, that would break my heart. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we do have a lot of, of those tour buses go by these days. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, they stop and point out the building and tell the story about outlaw music. Okay. And so we're kind of the gentle outlaws that have inherited the space. Right. But we do feel like, uh, you know, on Music Row, we're a bit, a little bit eclectic. Yeah. We do all kinds of music. We don't do commercial country music. Right. Well, that's a good thing. Well, I mean, it works for us. I mean, our passion has always been roots music, mm -hmm. whether it's bluegrass or Americana, singer-songwriter stuff. Yeah. Or even didgeridoo. <laughs> we like that, too. Yeah. So have you recorded all your records, your solo records here from 90-whatever-it-was-when-you-took-this-place over? Was it... Uh, so, so you yeah. got this place in early 2000s so or we, something? Right. We I think we got it in a, around 2004. Okay. And ever since then, yeah, we recorded... A um, few tracks from my Stolen Moments record, which came out in 2005, right. and then everything since then. Okay, cool. And so the new record on banjo, um, tell me a little bit about the process for that. I guess, like, first of all, like, when it comes to you, there's, I've noticed that you have, there's usually, like, quite a chunk of time in between projects, recording <laughs> projects, right? And well, you've like, got a lot on the go, and you're touring, and you've got the company and all that stuff, so I can see what, why and how that would happen. Mm -hmm. But what brings on the 
need for you musically to get in there and yeah. launch another project. Well, um, I will say it's true that Mama eats last, <laughs> and I've definitely found that to be true. Especially, you know, once I once we had kids, and then once I started producing other people's records, it was been really easy to let other people's projects get in front of my own. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I I love to try to write banjo music. I still love doing that after all these years. And, you know, trying to find new avenues for the instrument and new challenges for myself. Mm-hmm. So this record really grew out of a need to, you know, express some of those things that I discovered since my last record, which came out, I think, in 2015. And was at least half a covers record in an effort to try to, like, make the banjo palatable to people who didn't understand the instrument and what it was capable of, we yeah. said, well, let's just record some tunes people know, so they have kind take of like Take that a, out of the equation. Yeah, take right. that out of the equation. They have a platform to examine this from. Yeah. So, yeah, this record, by contrast, is all original tunes, really, except for one arrangement. And some really cool collaborations with... I like my favorite one is the the Kronos Quartet, which wow, I wanted to you. ask you about that. Yeah, because that's not a pretty unusual situation for a banjo to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like taking a pig to the racetrack a like little bit. Like taking a pig to the racetrack. <laughs> yeah. So, um, do you? So, when you're writing tunes on the banjo, like, what's that like for you? Are you just messing around one morning and suddenly you got a thing like falling out of your fingers, or do you? hear a melody in your head and figure out how to finger it on the banjo or like what's the actual or is there does it is it all over the place no it's usually sitting with the instrument and you know in my mm-hmm. hands and then an, you know an idea or some kind of melody pops out that you've recognized as something that's worth pursuing and see where see where it can take you once in a while i'll have an idea in my head sometimes i'll have a title in my head that i'm trying oh, yeah. to you know cast in a tune yeah. there's lots of latitude in that but generally speaking it's you know yeah, when I'm home and have time and space to just play the instrument and listen to it, mm-hmm. what it's saying, you know. There's a lot of like arrangement on the record too, because there's band stuff and there's duets and there's the thing with Sierra Hull and Steve Martin. Is that something that you're like consciously aware of as you're putting these songs together? In terms of guests or arranging? Like or? in terms of arranging, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some arranging is something I've had a lot of experience with the last number of years because I've produced so many records and I've discovered that it's something that I really enjoy you know Mm -hmm. trying to make each track have its own little twists rather than just playing down the form and you know I like to put something different each time you go through it just so that there's something to come back to for the listener to listen to yeah um so yeah I would say that that's very conscious it drives Gary um crazy because he's a bass player so (laughs) he has to notice all those chord changes and Uh it's like with the tune Foggy Morning Breaking that um, I wrote with Steve, you know, when I wrote the chart for that, I just did chord substitutions like every time a section came around, the chords are slightly different. Oh, cool. And so for the bass player, that creates a, an extra level of work. But I personally enjoy doing that. So with Steve Martin, uh, he's somebody you've worked with before, I think, right? Well, I've had the privilege of getting to be a part of the um, Steve, Steve and Marty show that oh, they've yeah, been touring. Oh, yeah, you did that. That must have been a gas. Oh yeah! Every time I get a chance to do that, it's uh, it's amazing. You know, you What's your really... role in that? Are you just coming out and playing banjo, or is it, or is it your band? Well, you know, the the show is constructed so that there's a band. The Steep Canyon Rangers are like yeah. kind of the core band for that. But when they can't make the gig, some you know sometimes we'll get the call. And so yeah, basically you you come out and you get to play a few tunes with Steve, and then a tune you know as a band, and then play on a couple other numbers like finale mm-hmm. number and all that. Cool. But the best. I mean, there's so many great things about it, but the best thing for me is just watching the process that Steve and Marty have. And, mm-hmm. 
and what um, perfectionists they are and oh, yeah? how much work they put into their craft. Interesting. Um, because nothing is left to chance. Everything is, you know, there's an incredible work ethic there. Interesting. That's really inspiring because musicians can get, you know, just kind of, all oh, just kind of like, we'll fake that. Yeah. But I think totally. to really achieve at that level, <laughs> there's not a lot of faking it, that, even though they could, you know. That's interesting because that is like, yeah, I, I totally know that separation between like if you're playing in a group or in a musical situation where the level is pretty high, there's a tendency to just be like, yeah, we'll figure it out. Like, we'll get up there. Sure. And, yeah, it'll be fine. And, yeah. you know, we've done this a hundred times. <laughs> but to really, really be excellent. You know, yeah. the work goes into it, and it's amazing to see yeah. that. And it's it really is inspiring. And everybody that I've brought out to be in the band, you know, when I've gotten a chance to do it, is inspired by that, too. Because if there are two guys who could just not bother with soundcheck and just show up five totally. minutes before the show, it's those two guys. Yeah. And that's And they deserve it. They should do that if they want. They should if they want, <laughs> but they absolutely don't. You oh, know, cool. they... So is there a lot of rehearsing that goes into those shows? Yeah, sound check every day at two o'clock. And you're involved in, like you're mm-hmm. in there doing it with them. Oh yeah, absolutely. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, it's 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 a great privilege in a lot of ways. So did you record that track here with him as well? Yeah, so uh, we recorded the track with the band. Mm-hmm. And uh, then when Steve came to town a week later or so, we recorded the banjo parts together, kind of sitting oh, facing cool. each other. I okay. was in the piano room and he was out here. Oh, cool. Yeah. So he And he's sort of frailing on that track, right? Mm-hmm. But he's, I wasn't aware of him ever frailing before. Like, I've seen him play, and he's always playing, like, Scruggs style. Right. So Steve's a real unicorn. Usually people are one or the other, you yeah. know, a frailer or a three-finger person. And he does both really well. Oh, really? But he's okay. frailing on that track. So he's, like, yeah, like, he's off on the right side, I think, when I heard it. And you're, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, it's, um, you know, as we've gotten to travel some and sit around in dressing rooms the banjos always come out and that double c tuning that foggy morning breaking is in oh is, so that's like the d's down to a c uh-huh. the b's up to a c exactly and then the g and d are still the same exactly and the drone is still a g yes okay. exactly perfect do you play banjo no oh well you should well, a little bit <laughs> yeah well that's a double <laughs> but yeah. i actually play weisenborn in not an unlike tuning to that okay cool and as a matter of fact it's almost exactly that tuning but there's one two more strings one right. more string. Okay. Well, that's like uh, the sawmill tuning, or it's an old-time tuning for yeah. banjo. So okay. clawhammer people play in that tuning all the time. Bluegrass people don't so much. Right. But it's Why just... Why is that? Why don't bluegrass players... Well, you know, any you know this, cool like tuning. anytime you change the tuning on your instrument, you have to relearn where to put your fingers. That's probably why, the first reason <laughs> so why. So they're lazy. Yeah, or just like efficient. Okay. <laughs> like if we're going to play in C, let's just play out of a C chord, you know, yeah. so you don't have to relearn. Because that is one of the challenges. Like any lick you know, you have to change it because that second string's tuned up right. half a step. Yeah. But I love that tuning and it's really inspiring. Do you use that tuning? Yeah, you well, do? I've okay. written some tunes in it before. Okay. And I love playing in that tuning. And it's, you know, having that low C and the high C, it's really yeah. beautiful. And with frailing banjo and that tuning, too, it's really beautiful. And what was sort of a launching point for me um, with that tune was um, Earl Scruggs and John McEwen playing Soldier's Joy on the Circle record oh, right. together. Yeah, yeah. And I've always thought that was just Magical. the greatest, right? Uh-huh. And I feel like, you know, I've been thinking about that for 30 years, wanting how great that was, wanting magic. to do something like that. Yeah. So, Were they using similar tunings? Yeah, I'm not positive if Earl was in double C, but I bet that John was. I need so to, would Earl have done a, like a double C tuning? I bet sometimes? that Earl was playing just out of like fourth string tuned down to a C, but just like a C chord otherwise. Yeah, okay. And I bet, but I don't know, I'm going to have to ask him that John was in double C. But I'm going to find that out. And I'll let you All know. Right. Cause that, Inquiring we do, minds. Banjo nerds need to know. Yeah. 
Did you write that tune and bring it to him, or was that a, like, did you co-write that song, or how did that work? Yeah, it was totally a co-write. Oh, I, cool. It was during the pandemic, and I yeah. came up with an A, and I texted it to Steve, and he sent me back a perfect B section, like, really fast. Oh. That really, you know, pulled the threads of, of the A section forward and took mm-hmm. it to a new place, which I thought was killer. And then we got on a Zoom call and wrote a bridge. Cool. Yeah. And then it just magically came together. And then, yeah, wrote it on a piece of paper and changed the chords every time. That's what I always do. So what do you mean? Like you like different inversions or sub, yeah. like what, well, in what more way? like how you can reharmonize something. So, yeah. you know, it's in the key of C, so you can use a C chord, but it'd be nice to color it with a, like an A minor chord or E minor chord yeah. here or there, you know, that kind right. of thing. Okay. And then like, what about the, what about the tune with Sierra Hall? Like that's a, that's a bit of a finger twister. <laughs> yeah. It's a mess of notes. <laughs> I love uh, banjo mandolin duets. Yeah. And I used to listen to um I don't I don't know if you're you are this much of a banjo nerd but um Sam Bush and Alan Mundy made like a record called Poor Richard's Almanac and they made a record called Together Again for the first time. Yep. And just the sound of banjo and mandolin is something that I've always really loved just that duet. And in fact Stuart Duncan and I made a record when we were this goes way, way back when we were both graduating from high school at the end of the 70s and we did a banjo mandolin duet on that on colored aristocracy so i've always Whoa. really loved the sound of those two voices together yeah so when i was working on that tune i mean I, sierra's just my favorite mandolin player she's pretty great yeah her touch is so delicate and she's so agile and she just never yeah. misses yeah and she took it on you know that's that was a lot to learn and she learned it all so and, you like recorded it and sent it to her and she just yeah i think that her. i actually wrote out a lead sheet but also sent it to her and i think that you know, she reads some but listens more. Right. And she worked it all out on the mandolin and told me that there's an ascending lick about, you know, two thirds of the way through that uses every fret on the first string of the mandolin. <laughs> like literally, and I'm watching her play it. I can't believe that she did that, like yeah. executing it so perfectly. So can you, when you're composing on the banjo, can you write, you can like rotate? Write music? No, not very well. Okay. I usually have to bribe a piano player, one of our okay. piano players to help me with it. I mean, I can scratch it out, but it's it's yeah. pretty painful. Like I can process. write music for guitar, but as soon as I get into anything open tuned, I'm just like, ah, forget it. I'm, yeah. I, it's a, no, I can a do it if I have to, but okay. um, I'm a little bit more facile with tab, but that still makes my shoulders ache to think about it. <laughs> wow, that's cool. Um, and then that track was done in here as well? Yes, she was sitting in the piano room, and I was mm-hmm. sitting right about where you are. And again, you'd done the band tracks previous? Is well, that... that was just a duet, so... Oh, right, okay. Yeah, so it was just the two of us, and yeah. we just recorded it in a few passes. I think there might be one or two edits in it, but it was basically live. Mm-hmm. And that's how good Sierra Hall is. Yeah, she doesn't need to do 25 no. takes, probably. No, absolutely not. She's, <laughs> she's quite amazing, really. Yeah. And it's, you know, as a female instrumentalist of a certain generation, you know, it's really... It's not something I've had a chance to do that much of, is collaborate oh, like with, other with other women who yeah. are like really great instrumentalists. Yeah. And so whenever I get to play with her, I really, I appreciate her for the musician she is, and then also for the opportunity that she gives me to do something that I've long wished to do, you know? Right. So when you were writing that tune, did, were you thinking either of her or just of mandolin, or was it just like a banjo piece until you laid no, it on No, I was definitely thinking of mandolin, okay. and then whenever I think of mandolin, I think of Sierra. So. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So right. tell me about the Kronos Quartet tune, mm-hmm. like how that came about, and how the I assume they probably do their own arrangement, or how does that work? So the way it came about on this record was um, we were at a festival called Fresh Grass in North Adams, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and this was pre-pandemic. It would have been, might have been 2019. And Kronos was there as kind of the artist in residence, and there's a studio there at the festival that's attached to this 
really cool boutique hotel that's called Porches. And we were all staying at Porches, and they were recording at Studio 9, and they were making their Pete Seeger record. Oh, okay. And, and I was working on this tune that didn't have a title yet, and I thought it would be really cool to do it with a string quartet. Like it was just a fluke that they were there, or were they there for the festival? Uh, they were there for the festival oh, okay. and to, to do this recording. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of an ancillary thing. And so since I knew they were working on a banjo-related, a banjo-adjacent record, I got up the nerve to ask David Harrington if he would consider. He's the he's the leader of the he's the leader Kronos? of Kronos, yeah. and uh, he said yeah, which you know really surprised me uh-huh. uh, because obviously their plate is quite full and they have so many people hoping to collaborate with them. Right, and you know, like musically, Porches is pretty safe compared to a lot of what they do. Someone said the other day that they thought Porches was the most melodic thing they they'd ever heard Kronos <laughs> play, and that might be right. You know, so. And so I worked with uh, our piano player at the time, Chris Walters, and he wrote out the string arrangement. Oh, okay. And, and so they were just playing a chart that you provided. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, and we were going to do it together. Did they tweak it at all, or they're just like? No, they played they it. Just go they in just and, played it down. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and we were going to record it together, and then the pandemic happened, so they ended up doing their tracks at Luke Skywalker Sound in Marin, and right. And so I think that I recorded a banjo part with like piano or something. Playing to the give arrangement. Them just for some time. Yeah. And then sent it to them. And then once they recorded the strings, then I redid the banjo to really go with their their phrasing. Yeah. So yeah. it was a little bit more complicated, but it worked. And to me, you know, that's one of the things we all learned in the pandemic is there's more than one oh, way yeah. to skin a rabbit, oh, right? Oh, my God, yeah. Like we used to think there was just one way. Yeah. Like when can you be here? I hadn't used a click track in about... 15 years and suddenly I had to use a click track again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of fun, actually. Yeah, well, I'm glad it was fun. <laughs> yeah, I kind of got back into it. It can be humbling. Yeah, it's just, I I, I don't know. I, with, the, with a lot of the stuff that I, I do, I like the floatiness of time a little bit. Or at least having that option to like right. float around inside of time. Yeah, which is interesting because when you play with a, cha- a chamber group like Kronos... It's all about that, you know. It's completely yeah. the opposite of recording like a bluegrass track with Bobby Osborne, where you're just trying to yeah. make everything like perfectly Total metronome, yeah. right? Yeah. So that that was interesting, and trying to get inside their phrasing and the way they felt the music was. Have you had a chance to play it with them? No, I haven't. Dang. I know. That'd be good. It would be good. Yeah, take a little practicing on my end, <laughs> but I would love to do it. <laughs> At this point in the show, I'd like to thank our amazing sponsors for the season. We couldn't do it without their support, and this year they are Mule Resophonics. Swing wider for inspiration with Mule Resophonic guitars. These are Resophonic guitars built for acoustic guitar players. Not just blues guitars, not just slide guitars. You don't need to play them in open tunings. They're set up with normal acoustic guitar action, and they have some of the best feeling necks in the game. Trust me, they're wicked. These musical tools wake up your ear and influence your playing towards uncharted musical realms. Check out the current lineup of guitars at the Mule Store at muleresophonic.com. Thanks to Deering. Deering banjos make some of the finest instruments out there these days and caters to all levels as well. If you're just getting into the banjo, they offer their incredible Good Time series, which are high-quality instruments at lower prices. Deering banjos are all made in the USA, and their website also features some incredible info on their products and just general banjo information. And now Deering is also making pro pick finger picks and thumb picks, and that's exciting because I've been using those finger picks for years. They make these cool ones with the fingertips missing, and I love those. They're the best. You can get info on the banjos and the finger picks over at DeeringBanjos.com. 
Thanks to Spectra 1964. For over 50 years, Spectra 1964 has established a reputation of creating some of the most innovative recording equipment on the market today. Their consoles and preamps were behind the sound of so many great American studios of the 1960s through to today. Spectra 1964 continues the legacy of providing incredible recording products for the home or professional studio. Check them out at spectra1964.com. Union Tube and Transistor. Union is known for guitar effects pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that sound amazing both on stage and in the studio. Their fuzz effects and compression pedals are insanely cool. I use the Sonebender Fuzz, the More Pedal, the Lab, and the Swindle Overdrive all the time in sessions and live on stage. You can find out more about them at uniontone.com. And finally, the Henhouse Hang is a three-day immersive recording experience at the Henhouse Studio in East Nashville with me, Steve Dawson. It'll be in September 2023 and then upcoming again in September of 2024. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll show you the ropes of recording roots in Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then, let's get back to the show. So when you make a record, do you have to go back in and learn everything? Or is it like everything kind of ingrained in your brain as far oh, as no. your I'm sure. So I know parts? it's the same for you. You know the answer to that question. <laughs> like you record the record and then you learn the record later. Yeah. And yeah. some things, you know, just aren't, aren't meant to be live things. You know, I always find that, yeah. you know, and some things like make their way into the live set. I always find I'm sense. often wrong about that it, or something that I think is not going to be a live thing. Mm -hmm. Then I try it live and it's like, oh, my God, this is actually one of the coolest things we're doing. Yeah. That's true, and sometimes you just need to spin it a different way. Like the tune, um, Sure Enough, that we recorded with the knot cone mm -hmm. on the record. Our flute player sounds great, play, works completely with flute and a little bit more, you know, drum kit and yeah. you know, no Pandero. It works. It's different. It, you know, it has more energy, which is a good thing in a live set. Yeah. So tell me about working with her. So she's a clarinet player from New York? She was or? born in Israel. And but she lives in New York. She lives in New York, okay. I think. She spends a lot of time in Brazil. How she, did you hook up with her? She's interesting. Uh, yeah, super yeah. interesting. I've yeah. never met her in person. Oh, okay. Uh, I can't wait to meet her in person. Yeah. But um, I knew that uh, she had an affiliation with Berklee School of Music, and I knew Roger Brown, who was the president of, of the college until last year, I guess. And so I thought it'd be amazing to do something with her. It's like that pursuit of collaborating with female instrumentalists, you know, it's, it's she, a theme for me. Yeah. And so is she affiliated with Berkeley somehow. Yeah. She's taught there, done, okay. you know, residencies and stuff like that. So I yeah. knew that Roger could hook me up with Anat okay. and he did. And so How did I you just, even know who she was though? Oh, I've, you know, I followed her music and watched a lot of her okay. videos, especially her Brazilian stuff on YouTube. Yeah. And she's, you know, really known in the jazz world, but I think her particular passion is like this Brazilian choro music. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, let's try to write a choro that maybe a knot would play. And it all just worked out. So I just reached out to her just cold, like Roger Brown said I should reach out. Yeah. And she couldn't have been more generous. And I, you've probably found that too in the musical world. Oh, totally. When you expect people to like not have time for you, and then you're just surprised because people make time like for each other. Like today, for example. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> well, you know, back at you for sure. 
Um, and so with that one, had you pretty much written the, t- the tune or was that another one where you kind of went back and forth with her? No, that one I'd pretty much written, although um, mm. she said, well, you know, Shoros have a, a distinct form. It's like, you know, whatever, five sections usually. So you might yeah, want to write. Tell me about the like, what do you know about that? Uh, not th- about that much. Okay. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I know that shores are like a Brazilian folk music. Yeah. And just the way we have our fiddle tunes that have like five parts, you yeah. know, like Little Rabbit or something like that is a five-part fiddle tune. Shoros will often have like four or five parts. Like distinctly go, different parts or like Yeah, you know, like parts. it'll have an A and a B and then you know, come back to the A. a. Yeah, that kind of thing. Okay. Exactly. So, Shoros do that too. So, she was like, well, you might want to have one more section. And so that I, I wrote the section that goes to the key of F, you know, after she, she suggested that. But Having the extra section was the, that was like the important thing to like make it kind of a legit tune. Yeah, I mean, I think it canon. would have been legit enough, but she was right. I mean, it was nice to have the release of going to the different oh, key and like yeah. giving room for solos. And okay. so, yeah, so I wrote it and I'm like, I don't know, this is real, is this too banjo-y? She's like, oh, I think I can cop most of that. Really? And, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Mike Marshall's done some of that stuff too, right? That's how I got turned on to it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so when I was in a band called New Grange in the late, very late 90s with Mike and Daryl and Todd Phillips and Tim O'Brien and Phil Auberg, it was kind of like a kitchen sink sort of string band. How do I not know about that band? Yeah, it was, um, I couldn't believe they asked me to be a part of it. Uh, but it was it was really Mike and Daryl's brainchild. Was it like a? Did you make records? Yeah, we made a couple records. Really? I'll, I'll hook you up. Okay. Uh, we made a Chris. We got together to make a Christmas record, and it was really? back in the days when the Wyndham Hill Christmas tour was like a big thing. I don't and know about that. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to the 1990s. So, yeah. um, but there would always be a huge Wyndham Hill Christmas tour, and it was like this big PAC circuit thing that they hmm. built up. Okay. And so Daryl and Mike had the opportunity to do that tour. And they're like, so we're going to put together this band. Do you want to be in it? And let's make a Christmas record so we have something to sell. So that was how the band started. And then in the course of doing this Christmas tour, which was like six weeks long on a bus, you know, so we all like spent a lot of time together playing together and talking about music. And we're like, well, this is a band. We're not just a Christmas band. We're a real band. So let's make a real band record and let's call ourselves New Grange. So then we did a record as New Grange. And toured as New Grange? Yeah. A little bit. Okay. And yeah, and then everybody's, you know, competing solo careers yeah. kind of, you know, it's never going to last for long. But yeah. while it lasted, it was really special. Wow, I bet. Because, um, you know, it kind of paired like the string band com- non-reading component like me and yeah. Todd Phillips and Tim O'Brien that like learn everything by ear with yeah. these guys who are just monster readers like Phil and Daryl and Mike. So who, who's Phil? I don't know his name. Okay, Phil Auberg. He was one of these Wyndham Hill artists. He's a great, great pianist. Oh, okay. And did a lot of records for Wyndham Hill and yeah. has done some solo records. Records gotten lots of Grammy nominations, kind of in the new age yeah. category, but that would make his music seem too watered down to anyone who's listening to this. It's deep. Mm. He's done a lot of stuff with symphonies, but he's, you know, he loves string band music too. So yeah. everybody was coming from a slightly different place, but we had this common love of string band music. Sounds wild. So yeah, so it was like a string band with piano yeah. and Tim O'Brien's voice. Not too, and not it too was, shabby. It was so fun. Yeah. I mean, I really learned a lot. And Mike was deep into Shoro music at that time. Okay, so he sort of turned you on to it. Yeah, so he was teaching us all these really complicated Shoros backstage, and that's how I first became aware of... Did he go to Brazil to study that stuff? Yes, he's gone to Brazil and to play with the Brazilian musicians. I feel like I'm due for a trip, too. You've never been? I've never been, but I would love to go. I, I don't know. I keep getting drawn to like South, uh, incorporating South American yeah, ideas say, into like the banjo. So I'm like, I don't yeah. know why. I, I clearly need to go there and find out. Do you listen to a lot of that stuff? 
I listened to some of it, but mm-hmm. not so much that would explain it. So I don't know. Maybe it's because I grew up in Southern California. I don't know. <laughs> right. Maybe. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, what are some of the things that you would say? Like, obviously, bluegrass is like a thing for you. You play the banjo and all that. But like, what else, as, as far as things that, that have like seeped into your compositional side, what would you say those things might be musically? Um, well, you know, if I could be anybody any given day, I probably would want to be Joe Pass for half oh, of the yeah. day. Yeah. Just to see what that feels like to have such fluency on the guitar. No doubt. I love his sound. I love his approach. And yeah. Just like his, you know, harmonic palette is just so appealing to me. Yeah. Uh, my dad used to listen to a lot of Joe Pass. Oh, yeah. So I think Did I get to see him? that. I came so close. I saw him a couple times. And was it amazing? It was amazing, yeah. One sort of before I really understood enough to appreciate how great he was, although I, you know, I was a kid, but um, the second time I was way more aware of both his legacy, but also just like what he was up to. Not that I could really compute what he was up to but mm-hmm. i was aware of kind of what was going on musically and that how great it was yeah i mean i watched so many of his youtube lessons you know yeah. or lessons on youtube and I, I had his you know his homespun tapes and all that stuff before <laughs> youtube yeah. and yeah i mean that's just endlessly fascinating to me so were you did you play guitar yeah that's where i started was with really? finger pick guitar yeah Product of the great folk scare of the early seventies. Tell me about that. Like what kind of um, like like Robbie Basho, John Fahey kind of no, fingerstyle? Um, worse, like Peter Paul and Mary. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, like Joan Baez, Judy Collins. F folk oh, total, guitar. all that stuff. You okay. know, my parents were kind of gifted each other guitars for <clears throat> Christmas, I think, one year, and this would have been in the very early seventies, like nineteen seventy one. And they were trying to play The Cruel War is Raging, you know, yeah. and they couldn't change chords fast enough to kind of make it work. But they showed me a few chords and that's how I started. So I was taking finger pick guitar lessons and, okay. you know, learning Easy Rider. And, and were you playing in bands at all or was that not, not really? Not initially, but I mean, okay. I was eight or nine. Oh, you were that young. Okay. Yeah. And then, you know, picked up the, the banjo a couple of years later. My guitar teacher was also, of course, a law student because it fits the whole plot, right, of the great folk scare. And, um, so he uh, taught me a little bit of banjo and lent me his Foggy Mountain banjo record, which my dad turned into, or like made a cassette copy of yeah. and labeled it Hillbilly Music. And that was kind of my launching point into the banjo. Okay. And I, I, I thought there was some sort of like detour into Dobroland for you. Oh, yes. That was, a, <laughs> that's, that's a dark chapter I've, in my history. <laughs> I, I've, I've seen a couple of times where you've mentioned that and you always say like how bad you were at the Dobro, but I find that hard to believe because it's no, not. It's, it's quite true. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I, I offended myself one too many times, and then yeah. I sold it. But yeah, I was in a band at Magic Mountain um, playing with Stuart Duncan. What's Magic Mountain? Okay, where are you from? Vancouver, Canada. Yeah. So I thought I heard a, Van- a Canadian accent. I wasn't sure. Have I said A ten times yet? Um, not yet. Okay. But it was the oot <laughs> that, that got that called you out. Um, okay. Magic Mountain is a theme park in a uh, little bit north of LA. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, so they would hire bands to play. Yeah. You know, in this case, we played at a Spillican Corners, which is probably like some kind of old time town or whatever. And uh, we had a summer gig where we worked from, you know, whatever, 11 a.m. to 3 every day and played four or five sets. Oh, so Magic Mountain is literally just a, it's a theme park it's a that theme hired park. So like you're okay. like standing there under Thunder Mountain by the corn dog stand. And okay. Playing, you know, it's that kind of thing. So do they still do that? Um, I would guess that they do. Wow. Like live music. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It was a big thing for, you know, bands in the Mm seventies. I mean, it was a big employer of, you know, bluegrass bands. And I mean, Steve Martin got his start as a magician and I think at Knott's Berry Farm. Okay. Which is in Anaheim, so a little bit south of Magic Mountain, but still know, like the I do greater know LA. Farm. Yeah, That's so it's <laughs> still like the greater Los Angeles area. So okay. yeah, so an important part of the ecosystem, really. So is that where you grew up? Was in the LA area? Where? Well, I grew up in La Jolla, California, which is um, San Diego area. Oh, okay. So you know, which is not that far, yeah. but for a Canadian, that's like next door. It's only about 90 miles away. Right, so right. You guys drive that far for breakfast. Yes, we so. do. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, there was a banjo player in that band. And so they were like, well, if you want to play Dobro, you can play in the band. And the banjo player was John Hickman. Oh, so, wow. Okay. And he was a great early mentor to me, just um, in terms of like getting to stand next to somebody who had such a distinctive style and tone and was like, he was a banjo player. Like he yeah. was the guy. Like, had did he already have like a recording career at that point? He had come from Ohio uh, to LA to play with Byron Berlin and Sundance, and I know he made lots of records with Byron and with Sundance too. Not sure what his recording career was prior to coming to LA, but he was the guy. Like, you know, that you'd speak his name in hushed tones. It was like John. Really? Hickman. Oh yeah, he was the guy. So I got to stand next to him and like observe him what's his deal like tell me a bit about him because he's he's like i don't know his style like i know his name and i know some of the stuff that he did but like what's his whole trip on the banjo about yeah just like you know traditional bluegrass banjo out of the columbus ohio area so he was playing with you know it's funny to think about the migration like the demographic shifts of people like from appalachia going up north to work in the factories like they all did you know bobby osborne told me a lot of stories about his family moving from Hyden, Kentucky, up to Dayton, Ohio. Mm. So there were like, you know, Appalachian people up there, and he was, John was playing with those people. Yeah, Ohio's a real hotbed. Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating, actually, because yeah. you think bluegrass music came from the South, and it did, but it commingled with the North, too, when people yeah. went up North to look for work. Yeah. And so John got to play with, you know, like some really hardcore bluegrass people. So when he came West, it's like he knew like the East Coast thing like the eastern tradition of the music and he was a great i mean he had a great touch and he was a really retiring kind of guy very shy but he was how old would he have been back then mm, he was probably like he probably seemed ancient but he was probably like 45 i I doubt he was even that old he (laughs) might have been in his 30s mid 30s maybe he was 40 okay um so so he was was, a young man was he showing you stuff on the banjo yeah and i got to watch him every day you know just standing there 
playing my bad dobro watching me play, <laughs> watching play banjo. <laughs> so it all worked. The dobro served a great purpose in my life. But So when you were playing dobro, like, did you have the right hand thing going on? Because it's not totally... Yeah, it's not right hand was not the, my problem. Okay, it was the bar. It was the bar and the fact <laughs> that you've got frets, but you might as well not have frets. Yeah. It's like the pitch thing, you know, just like having to intonate every note. So you're just a banjo player on the wrong instrument. I think that that's true. Okay. Or a guitar player. I don't know. But definitely a player of things with frets, with real frets. Yeah. Not just fake ones. Right. So, you know, I mean, that that was my deal. And just like, I really appreciate guys who have dedicated their lives to playing with one finger. Like, why would you want to play with one finger when God gave you five? You know, I don't know. Or for at least four that you could use on the fingerboard. Yeah. So. So um, how yeah. did, how did the transition go into banjo for you then? Well, I was playing banjo all that time. I just wasn't quite you there. Quite ready I wasn't to, quite ready to yeah. like kick off the songs and stuff. And okay. So, but after spending the summer watching John, and you know, I think that he had enough after a while of playing with a couple of kids. So then I gradually graduated to banjo. And he left. Yeah. Yeah. And, and did you keep playing at the Magic Mountain for a while? Was that a no? Thing for actually, you um, what happened that summer was that. Child labor laws were really strict in L.A. I don't know what they're like now, but back then in the 70s, that Stuart and I had to have work permits for every gig that we played. Oh, wow. And we wouldn't... We like were every only, single gig? Every single gig. And we weren't oh allowed God. to be... Like, there were specific rules. Like, if we played in a place that was had a bar, yeah. that was okay if we were on stage. But during breaks, we need, needed to be outside or in the bathroom. <laughs> Really? Standing in the bathroom. Yeah, because they were serving liquor. Just go straight from the <clears throat> stage to the bathroom. Yeah, so like I can rem remember standing in the bathroom at the Palomino Club <laughs> waiting for the second set to start. I mean, it's ridiculous stuff like that. Wow. But in this case, the child labor people, for some reason, took it upon themselves to come see our show at Spillican Corners at Magic Mountain <laughs> and write up a report that said that the children weren't allowed to go to the bathroom enough. Which was not true. We could certainly go to the bathroom as much as we wanted to. Whoa. And so they end we ended up you know, being dismissed from the gig because Whoa. of that. But before that happened, um, another one of my favorite memories was Billy Barty, who is a, a small person, uh -huh. um, a well-known Hollywood celebrity, trying to get me and Stuart to join the Small People's Union. Really? Yeah, so we didn't. Yeah. But, you know, it was just kind of a strange... Was that a way around the child labor laws or something? I don't know that it would have gotten us around the child <laughs> labor laws, but it is my, one of my claims to fame that Billy Barty came to see the band, so... Oh. Um, yeah. You, you mentioned Stuart. You're talking about Stuart Duncan. Stuart Duncan, yeah. So, so you go way back like into high school with him? Pre-high school. I met Stuart when he was 11, 10 or 11. No way. He was still in elementary school. Like, I can't believe how long I've known Stuart. That's crazy. A really long time. And, you know, he was always... Was he pretty good back then? He was, like, un untouchable back then. Really? You know, the first time I saw him play was at a pizza palace in San Diego. And <laughs> he was playing with a kid's band called Pendleton Pickers that had just been in Nashville playing on the Grand Old Opry because they won like the KSON Country Award or something like that. They got a chance to play on the Grand Old Opry. Then they played Earl's Breakdown and Stuart just played Paul Warren's fiddle solo note for note. And he oh. was just like, you know, he wasn't even as tall as the mic stand in my mind, you know, he <laughs> yeah. was just a little kid, Yeah. but just a really powerful musician. And Stuart has always been like, he's never been limited by anything. Yeah, he could I pick up tell. any instrument and just play it. I just saw him with Robert Plant, Alison Krauss, or well, I guess it was last year, whenever that was. It was here. And uh, he was insanely, like, he did all this stuff that I had no idea he could do. Yeah. He's always been that way. Amazing. And so, you know, I was 
definitely not worthy. So you went to, you were in the same school with him and everything? <laughs> no, he lived uh, in a little bit north of where I did in Oceanside, and then his family moved up next to Magic Mountain. Okay. Um, so we were never in the same school, but, you know, we were kind of in the same circle, and his dad was a retired Marine, mm-hmm. and he would spend his time taking Stuart around to gigs, because Stuart was, like, gigging and doing recording sessions and stuff, and he was just a little kid. Yeah. Um, and after a while, his dad was, you know, lent me a better banjo, and you know, kind of helped me along. And then after a while, he was like, kind of made Stuart play with me. And <laughs> and then it, you know, when he realized I didn't have cooties, that was like the word cooties. <laughs> like when I say it out loud now, I realize it's a word I haven't spoken in like 35 years. Because I don't even know if it's a word anymore. I don't think it's a word anymore, but I, yeah. I, I, yeah. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. So there was some of that. But then, you know, after a while we became, you know, just like to have someone my own age to share this love and fascination with this music that nobody at my school was into of course i mean i was so it was really like that it was you were (laughs) an outlier as far as like being into bluegrass and yes well i mean la jolla high school really it was surfers and surfer chicks right and then there was me and i was wearing for some reason thought it was a good idea to wear western shirts and jeans and big belt buckles and sure. boots and yeah why not because yeah. that's i was a banjo player so yeah i kind of did my school thing and then on the weekends i'd go up to la and meet Stuart's family and we'd go play someplace so it was you and Stuart, and was there another solid ensemble of people yeah we had yeah. you know some guys that rounded out the band and we were in a band called gold rush and then we occasionally did a duo called gold dust <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was great i mean it was so fortunate to have somebody who was relatively my own age um doing standards like like straight up bluegrass stuff some of that stuff and then weird stuff like spock breakdown you know we like we both loved star trek so <laughs> we worked out some kind of you know like teenage medley of <laughs> Theme to Star Trek and okay. like you know Close Encounters and Star Wars and Were played you writing it with the tunes at all back then. A little bit. Okay. But the record that we made together, we wrote a few tunes and gave yeah. them juvenile names like Possum Gravy on Grandma's Beard was one of them. And I gotta hear this record that. too. So what re- what year did that come out? It came out in 1981 or two on Ridge Runner Records. Oh wow, that's all okay. That's yeah, a like long a really ago. long time ago, and yeah. it's way out of print. I think you can find it on YouTube and yeah. We probably do maybe need to put it out. I'm not sure if we need to put it out or not. I think you need to put it out. Well, it's it's funny to listen to it because you can really hear the influence of John Hickman and Byron Berline and uh-huh. our collective playing. Yeah, I bet. That's so that cool. Was, those were the guys whose feet we worshipped. Did he go off and I don't know what he did in his career, but you know, in those years, but like, did he leave California to go to Nashville or something? Yeah, he left California to go to study at uh, at the Bluegrass pro- Program at South Plains College. That's what it's called, right in Loveland, Texas. Oh, okay. So he did a couple years there, and yeah. I went off to college in Cambridge. And so you did this whole thing, like you you went to school for like you got a master's in something, right? Or yeah, business business degree, right? So so was music just uh, gone from your life for a while, or were you still playing, or what, what happened? Yeah, with that? I was still playing, but not as much. You know, I uh-huh. went to college and fully intent. Well, I started college as a pre med, and then really, yeah, yeah. And my parents were really hoping I would be a doctor, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and then when that you know organic chemistry hit that wall, and so then I was like recalibrated. They were like, well, law school or business school. So business school was two years. So I applied to business school and got into UCLA and okay. went and got an MBA in finance and marketing, I think. Wow. And then joined Smith Barney in their public finance division and did like finance stuff for a few years. Like the whole uh, Wall okay. Street yeah. kind of. This is like in the trip. 80s. Mm-hmm. So that whole 
that was probably a pretty crazy scene. Yeah, it was a crazy <laughs> scene. It was very different from bluegrass scene. Um, you know, and I well, was still playing some, but not as much. It's like I was. It's 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 funny to look back on that time through like the lens of you know 2023 because it was really before there had been very many instrumentalists, any instrumentalists maybe, yeah, to come out of this music and like have some kind of career playing it really as a right. solo career. You know, maybe David Grisman. Yeah. But, you know, Bella Fleck wasn't quite not happening quite yet. happening yet. Yeah. And so to think, you know, I play banjo, I think I'll make a living doing that. You know, when I finally did decide to leave my investment banking job, my parents were less than enthusiastic. Oh, yeah. They're like, I remember my mom saying, do you want to be a 40 year old lady playing in a pizza palace? <laughs> Yeah, because that was that like the good. perception of where you could go with the banjo. <laughs> right, right. It's like back to that same pizza palace where it all began, you know. So what did draw you out of that world? Like how 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 did you get back into music? Um, well, you know, I think not coincidentally, it was with the help of another woman, and that was Alison Krauss. So I kind of you know got up the nerve to leave my job, not fully intending to leave it forever, but just to take a break. Then but how did you run into, like, how did she know about you? Well, we had a mutual friend um, in Carrie Estrin, who's lives uh -huh. in, here in Nashville now, now, but she was a concert promoter in Boston, and she managed Tony Rice for a while. Yeah. And she introduced us to each other. Okay. But Allison also had pre-sequel, the record Stuart and I made. Yeah. So, so she, she knew of you. She kind of knew of me and forgave okay. me for the possum gravy on Grandma's beard, <laughs> which, was, which was good. Yeah. And, you know, at, at a time where... There were just not very many female band leaders in bluegrass. Allison was one, yep. even though she was all 16 years old or something. No, it doesn't matter. And yeah. so, yeah, so she hired me, and that's how I... You were actually in Union Station at that point, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So was that a band that had already existed, or were you in the initial Union Station? No, it already existed. It actually started before Allison was even in it. Oh, I It was a band that. in Champaign, Illinois. And okay. I think that uh, Andrea Zahn, who's you may know, is a great fiddle player and singer, mm -hmm. works, has been with James Taylor Band for yeah. many years, and is a close friend of Allison's. They grew up together in Champaign. I think that Andrea was the first fiddle player and singer in Union Station. Okay. And then Allison took over. And, and then Allison kind did of Did she ever take over? Band. Yeah, she took over. <laughs> <laughs> and she did so much. I mean, it was, it was great in so many ways. Cause yeah. You know, I was young enough to be able to enjoy the whole experience of like being a band in a van. Yeah. You know, and get to do that. And so you made that record. I've got that old feeling with her. Mm -hmm. That was like 1989 or 90. Or yeah, something. it would have been 89. Yeah. yeah, or 90. You're right. Like right when I joined the band, that was something. One of the first things she was working on. Was she well known at that point, or like had she, she already was, won Grammys and all that stuff? She or had not yet? won any Grammys yet. That was her first that Grammy was, the first was for one. that record. Amazing. But she was, you know, she was getting a lot of attention in the bluegrass world, but she hadn't reached outside the bluegrass world yet. So to have a kind of front row seat to watch the evolution of her artistry from, yeah. you know, like, little, you know, not not on the mainstream radar, Alison Krauss, to yeah. like really branching out. It's really fascinating. What do you remember about that session? That must have been like the first real, like, fairly serious session that you were involved in. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, so Stuart and I made pre-sequel and we recorded that at Hollywood sound in hollywood so we like yeah. in a real studio but to be like in the same room with jerry douglas like what? yeah so you was know? he in union station at that time no he was that, yeah, i believe was... he co-produced that record oh okay i feel like he was in the room okay Bill Vorndick engineered it okay yeah, i, I remember who else a little bit too. played on the session sam bush was there so who else was in the it was in union station when you were so when I first joined, uh, John Pinnell was playing bass uh -huh. and Jeff White was playing guitar. It was a quartet. Okay. 
Yeah. And you on banjo and yeah. Allison. And that was it. Yeah, and that was it. Cool. And so was that like a fairly quick record to make? Or was it like a, like Bill Vorndick was a very precise, exacting engineer. Was it he like, was, but it was Bluegrass record and it was uh, 1989 and, you know, small well, we would have been cutting to tape. Yeah. So just the the options to fiddle with things indefinitely, like you can with Pro Tools, they weren't quite the same, yeah. you know? So, I mean, I remember we came to Nashville a few times for to do the sessions for it, but it didn't extend over months, you know? It was mm-hmm. more like, Where'd you do it? That, I can't remember. I know it was on Music Row. I can't remember what okay. studio it was, but I guess it would say on the jacket. Ah, interesting. Yeah, but that were, that was my first session in Nashville. That must like, have been exciting. Are you kidding? Yes. It's like, uh, pinch me. Yeah. Where's Waldo? <laughs> and so that turned into like being full-time touring musician with her then, obviously, because you were in Union Station for like three mm-hmm. three years or something. Yeah. And was it like, were you gone all the time? Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, we lived in the van and drove miles. Did you still live miles. in L.A., more or less? Or? So I was living in San Francisco. Oh, and then, okay. And kind of like living, I had a place in San Francisco as I still had my investment banker life, you know, So you pad. kind of kept, kept yeah, like, did I you still have that, a job? No, I didn't have the job, but I had the pad. Okay. And then uh, <laughs> spending a lot of time here, and like we'd live at the Shoney's Music Row when we weren't on the road, yeah. you know, and then eventually, you know, Sold the place and moved to Nashville and got an apartment in Antioch like everybody does when they first move to Nashville. Okay. That, that was to. even a thing back in the early 90s. Yeah, right? totally. Wow. And yeah, that's how I came to Nashville. So it was, I, I really give her a lot of credit for taking a chance on me when she could have really hired any banjo player, including many hairy legged guys. <laughs> <laughs> Well, she was probably looking for something different. And, and, I mean, your approach to the banjo, but also having a woman in the band was probably important for her, I I would imagine. Well, we had a lot of fun. I mean, there's a certain camaraderie that you can share with other women that's different, you know? Yeah. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Do you still ever play with her? Uh, I haven't played with her in a long time, but it would be fun, too. These days. Yeah. Yeah. You've done a lot of sessions and a lot of producing and stuff like that, too. Was that something that you got into right when you came here? Or did you, like, was it a struggle for you at all to, like, get enough work to survive here? I I mean, it was a different town, different time. Mm -hmm. What was that all like for you? I was a banjo player. So, I mean, I didn't have high expectations as far as studio work. Yeah. Um, And, you know, really from the beginning, and once Gary and I connected and we toured with Michelle Schacht all through 1992. Right. And in the midst of that tour, started talking about how you make a life in music. Um, and really kind of thinking about it as spokes of a wheel mm-hmm. where, you know, there's the live, at least for us, you know, there was the live performance side of things. But then there's also the business side of things because I had this investment banking experience and he'd done a lot of producing. So we're like, well, why don't why don't we start a record label um, as part of that? And that way we could be a platform for other artists and mm-hmm. help, you know, get other artists music out there. We could still to our own band and. You know, maybe someday have a studio, and so that's kind of how we conceived of what we've built with Compass, and that was right. the start of that. So I never was really thinking about needing to pay my rent as a banjo player because we started the label really in 1993 with the Didgeridoo record, which somehow worked. I mean, that's it was so a time crazy. when you could still do that kind of thing, but yeah. the, the retail market for music was really different. And I don't know if you're old enough to remember when I'm they old had. Enough. Okay, well, when they had nature company stores and malls and discovery stores where they would sell music and yeah. like world music I know what you mean. and yeah. nature sound recordings. Those Putumayo so, compilations that sold like 8 billion copies. Exactly. Yeah. And so there was an opportunity for a didgeridoo record that you wouldn't have now. 
Right. So it wasn't as insane as it sounds, but it's still, <laughs> it still is. It's uh, still kind of funny. It's still very funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've always kind of, you know, tried to make this label be a home for music that we thought was great music, regardless of, you know, necessarily how challenging it might be to find the market for it, if we really right. believed in it. Yeah. And, you know, market forces have made us have to choose more and more judiciously as time has gone yeah. on. But we still have that spirit at our core. Mm-hmm. And has the whole label thing, has it like kept your interest going all these years? Are you still as into it as you were back then? Like the business is so different now. And in I a know, way, that's I have a label thing. too, and it's kind of a grind, honestly, like for, yeah. me, for me, right? It's especially challenging. I mean, that's yeah. why they call it work, though. I mean, yeah. <laughs> we used to think that when we had 100 records out on Compass, it would be so easy because back way back, like when did you start your label? Quite Like 20 some odd years ago. Okay. So we're almost like we started Compass about 30 years ago. And so, you know, people who, who had big catalogs, they would say, well, you know, catalog just churns and it's going to be great once you have a hundred records out, you know, catalog just churns and you put out new releases and it all kind of works. And yeah, that whole economics have just been turned on its ear and yeah. shaken and stirred five times. So, yeah. so I think what keeps it interesting is the challenge, mm-hmm. you know? We still want to figure out the best way to do this, right? And how to skin this cat, you know. And yeah. it's like the rules keep changing for it. So, you know, in some way, while while it would be really nice if it was still the same business that it was when we launched in 1993, that could be boring. I mean, at least this way, it's interesting. It's like there's a new <laughs> challenge true. every day. It is so. Di- it's such a different in- industry too. Like when I started it too. Like uh, in that era that you're talking about, maybe a little, uh, or, you know, five six years later. It was like there was so many independent distributor companies. Right. It was like, well, just choose one and go with it. Right. And so that is, did you start with regional distribution? Yeah, we started with Festival, which was okay. The Canadian of course, so yeah, we've distributed through Festival sure. in Canada. Yeah, um, a, a lot. Yeah. yeah, right. So Jack Schuler was like a friend of mine, and we we would, you know, he would distribute our records, and that was all good. And then we eventually moved to another one called specific music that was based in Victoria and mm-hmm. sort of moved around a little bit, but it was easy kind of just to like have records come out and get them in stores and I know it's a different world. It's, it's a different world and the pandemic <laughs> I feel like, you know, has kind of really exacerbated the challenges. Yeah. I don't know if you feel that way. Yeah. I mean, I, the more, the more work I do as a musician and session player and producer, that stuff is like really taking my energy away from the label stuff, which mm-hmm. is sort of like kind of I feel like it's sort of a crumbling thing off to the side side at this point yeah yeah but I don't know we've put out a lot of music and it's been an interesting run too so Mm -hmm. maybe things will kind of settle down a bit I'm not really sure yeah I don't know I mean I there could be some things to come along that could make it better for us I mean maybe streaming rates will go up that would be a good thing maybe broadcast royalties in the United States will finally happen for master owners that's an inequity that just there's no excuse for and with you know non-terrestrial radio showing that the model works to pay people who fund records to have their records played on the air there's fewer and fewer excuses for that not to exist so so are you guys actively looking for artists these days and stuff or do you do you kind of feel like you're at a level of where, where you just need to maintain what you have or do you no, still we're always we're always looking okay um especially for artists that really give us you know kind of all the bits that we need to do our job as well as we can do it so yeah. it needs to be an artist that's far enough along in their career usually you know right where they're already touring and they've already got some infrastructure so that we can bring what we have to offer and yeah you know really make it a rocket ship as yeah. we've had the experience of you know, moving faster than the artist is moving, it it just doesn't work. You can't drag them along with you. You really need the artist at totally. the point of the spear. You know? Well, it's kind of an exciting time in that regard, I guess, because like the whole 
the whole like appreciation of bluegrass music is kind of changing again right now, like with the whole Billy Strings extravaganza. And I mean, you've got Rob and Trey on your mm-hmm. on your label, which are sort of like it doesn't really get any better than that. No, as those far guys as, are like, both monsters. Yeah, they are. They're it's terrifying. interesting though, because you know the Billy Strings phenomenon is fantastic for bluegrass, and it's like I think it's like the thousand year flood. I, I don't think there's yeah. ever been an artist like that. It's so crazy in bluegrass, or yeah. to come out of bluegrass. But at the same time, you know, people who are Billy Strings fans, most of them, they want to see Billy Strings. It's like they're not really looking for other bluegrass. So right. I don't know to what extent it will lift the genre up. It will somewhat. But, you know, Billy Strings can sell out Bridgestone Arena two or three nights in a row. And, like, the next band under that is way below. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's Which true. Which is not to say that they're not way above where everything was when I, you know, yeah. embarked on this in 1989 or whatever, you know. So it'll be, a, it's a... But I do feel there is a, that there is a, a renewed appreciation for the genre. And I see it with, like, John Reichman's a friend of mine from in Vancouver. Oh, yeah. I did a track and, with John Reichman and, uh, oh, yeah. that actually got a, a nomination today Oh, cool. Um, for, on a special C record. He's, oh, I've known John forever. Yeah, he's Since amazing. Since he's in the good old person. Right. Yeah, we go way back. But, he, you know, like a guy like that has had, or, you know, you can see in his career, like some real ups and downs and things. And I feel like there's a, re- a renewed appreciation for somebody like that. That's like well rooted in bluegrass, but doing some other things. And suddenly he's got like bigger audiences, it seems to me, and play mm-hmm. more festivals and Yeah, more well, I think that probably it, it, I mean, the success of Billy Strings, you know, maybe its impact would seem, be seen most in the growth of live, and also production yeah. values, too. Yeah. It's like, you know, just like the idea of having a show around a bluegrass band. I mean, the way Billy Strings has done that is amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, really But crazy. it's still a challenge that, you know, as the music industry relies more and more on, on streaming, you know, the bluegrass audience, by and large, still is not on streaming as much as other genres. Right. And at the same time as retail is contracting, you know, we're not seeing streaming growth happen fast enough to make up for what we're losing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, you know, even the bluegrass fans are figuring out that they can, you know, rather than buy the record at the gig, which, you know, they used to do, they're buying less, you know, audio product at the gig and more soft goods. And, yeah. you know, if they want to hear it, they'll they'll find it on their phone. So, you know, it's a challenging time, but I'm really committed to this music. It's like I've been in it my whole life mm-hmm. and I I love it so much that I can't see not trying to play as, as big a role as I can and playing it forward. Well, yeah, we need need people like you doing that. Well, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate <laughs> you saying that. So, uh, are you going to be touring this record like with your band? Is that the are you doing that this summer? Yeah, we're yeah. out and about doing shows and doing some of the tunes from the new record and so what's the current lineup in 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 your band so it's basically been the same for uh quite a number of years it's um piano yeah uh bass drums small drum kit and we've got an amazing flute player so that's the configuration and banjo just flute yeah cool yeah so flute piano banjo bass and drums who are the players well gary west on the bass of course um mason embry on piano Uh and john ragusa on flute are they from, do they live here? Uh, yes. Okay. Well, Ragusa lives, John, we call him Ragusa, but John lives in New York. Okay. But Mason lives here, and Jordan mm-hmm. Perlson's been playing drums with us. He's great. Oh, yeah. He lives here in town. Yeah, I see him play quite a bit. Uh, so he plays like a scaled-down kit or what? Yeah. Well, it probably okay. looks a lot like that one behind me. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it's it kind of the instrumentation grew out of just trying to figure out the best way to present my tunes live. And when we started off touring years ago, like the first thing we tried was 
what you would expect, you know, was like guitar, fiddle, mandolin, bass, yeah. and banjo, but just playing more progressive music, not just the straight bluegrass repertoire. Right. But then over time, we discovered that the piano had so much to add, like harmonically and dynamically, that it kind of really seemed to replace the guitar and the mandolin. Well, the mandolin's kind of covered by the drums. Yeah. So it was kind of liberating and mm-hmm. really seemed to be the best way to go about getting across the tunes that I was writing, which for some reason, unbeknownst to me still, tend to come out as not bluegrass tunes. Right. Even though I have really bluegrass just, at my core. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Instrument-wise, I was curious, do you take one banjo out with you or mm-hmm. do you have a slew of... Well, I would take a slew if yeah. I could take a slew, but since we fly most of the time, I'll take like a regular like G-tune banjo. Yeah. And then I've been bringing a low banjo, which is just a banjo with heavier gauge strings so that you can play out of open E rather than Same open G. Same configuration of tuning, but just yeah, drop just down, down a tone a, and a half. Exactly. Right. So, and we've used a bunch of Is that just a sonic record. choice? Yeah. It's okay. kind of, you know, comes after the John Hartford what John oh, is that what did. he did? Was he an E? Yeah, a lot of times, because okay. you could play your open G patterns, yeah, right? Yeah. But he could accompany his voice, which was a lower baritone. Right. So, right. and I love the sound of that instrument. Just having the low, the resonance of the lower pitched banjo is really nice. What kind of banjos do you take? Well, I take a Julia Bell banjo that um, I collaborated with Deering on. That's the low banjo. And it's kind of a tribute to John Hartford that incorporates his artwork into the inlays on the fingerboard. Wicked. And uh, they, really, uh, they, really nice. um, they support this podcast, so oh. yay, yay for Deering. Well, hats off to Deering. <laughs> I mean, they've done amazing things, and they're a San Diego company, so yeah. it's great to be working with those guys. And we're um, developing a banjola together that I'm really excited about, which will be... A banjola? Yeah, it's an all-wood banjo. Oh. And um, I've got one that I've used on the last few records, and I've used it a lot with Indigo Girls. Yeah. And I've been talking to those guys because I know we can build the build a better banjola. So that's what we're working on. That'll be kind of our next project together. Wow, that's cool. And then uh, for a G banjo, I play a Pruka banjo, which is built for me by Yaroslav Pruka in the Czech Republic. Oh yeah. And he's got a company called Pruka Banjos. It's been uh-huh. in business for since the late seventies. Is it uh, kind of a based off the standard Scrug yeah. style banjo? Oh, it just. Or is there anything unusual about it? Um, his craftsmanship is. Great, and yeah. uh, he, you know, he designed this instrument for me, so it's got really a gorgeous inlay pattern. And we did some custom things, like you know, a little bit more mass in the peghead, and it's got an arched fingerboard. Both my banjos do. Um, Is that unusual for banjos? Well, not not unusual so much anymore, but you know, traditionally banjos just had a flat fingerboard. Yeah. And then, kind of more recently, people have gotten into the arched fingerboard, oh, which okay. you know, now that I have one and play one, I always notice when I don't have it more than when I do. You know, right. it's just yeah. like, of course it should be like this. It just is so ergonomical. Right. But um, yeah, Yarda builds great banjos. And I I love supporting his work because of the passion that it took for him to become a banjo maker in Prague. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, where bluegrass music, you know, can be kind of this repository of conservative values in the United States. In Czech Republic, playing bluegrass music was revolutionary. And it was something right. that the Czech people did during the Soviet occupation to thumb their nose at the government. Is that where the Kruger brothers are from? Oh, they're from Switzerland. Or, oh, they're Swiss, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this was different because it was an Iron Curtain country, and right. Yarda and I are about the same age, so he grew up under the Soviet occupation. Well, how did he get his mitts on bluegrass music? Uh, yeah, black market. You know? And <laughs> people awesome. couldn't leave the country to go on holidays, so they would go on Whoa. camping trips and sit around the campfire, and they got exposed to 
bluegrass. I think Pete Seeger toured in Czech Republic, and then I think some music got smuggled in, and eventually Yarda was able to get his hands on a black market copy of the Earl Scruggs banjo book and Crazy. made his own picks out of cutting them out of tin cans. Whoa. Nickel plating that. I just got fascinated with it, and got he was just a real with craftsman. It and read how to build a banjo without any of the pictures from his oh black God. market copy of Earl's book and built a banjo. And when he could finally get out of Czech Republic, he came to the United States to IBMA and showed his banjo to a couple builders, including Jeff Stelling. He just uh, had one at that point? He had one. Whoa. And they were blown away that he could have built a banjo so close to like classic specs yeah. just by reading the copy in the old Scruggs book. That's crazy. No, he's really Is the talented Scruggs book, builder. does it get that detailed where it's got like Apparently, measurements Apparently, I mean, everything? I always skipped over that part. <laughs> I was more interested in how to play the tunes. Yeah. But yeah, I guess it tells you how to build a banjo. So Giarda figured it out. Whoa. And so supporting, um, playing his instrument and supporting him is meaningful to me just because... Is he known in the bluegrass world? as? Mm-hmm. A, okay. He is. And he his company makes all the metal parts or was yeah. for a bunch of different banjo manufacturers and was for Gibson when they were making oh, banjos. Wow. Okay. So he's a well-known. Like there's a, a real tradition of uh, machine craft in Czech Republic. Yeah. And he's also just a great luthier, so there's like real precision machinery thing happening that he really brings to the table. Wow. And um, yeah, he's also a banjo player. I mean, so yeah. how can you not support a guy that <laughs> wanted it that bad? You know, yeah. we're so lucky. It's like I could just decide in 1970, whatever, I want to play banjo, and then there's a banjo that I can play. Yeah. But he decided he wanted to do it, and then he had to make one. <laughs> You yeah, know, that's nutty. if you want to play one, you got to start by making it. It's funny because the Dobro's from that part of the world, too. Yeah, that's right. The Dopiero brothers were from Slovakia. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's really fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, this music that started in Southern Appalachia has just, you know, it really does have all these international sides to it, too, especially these days. And when you play live, do you do you just play into a mic, or is there some fantastic new technology that... Well, as long as the technology is working, um, which it wasn't this weekend for a minute, but <laughs> really? uh, when, it's, <laughs> when it's working, uh, yeah, I've got a pickup, uh, I think a Fishman Rare Earth pickup in my banjo. Okay. And that's what I use, and I uh, run it into a Tone Dexter preamp. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's funny. I was just at the IBMA uh, press conference this morning. Congratulations, and, by the way. Well, thank you Nomination. so much. I appreciate it. fantastic. That. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I was surprised, maybe not surprised, but it's like everybody was using pickups that was performing. Uh, Sam Bush Band, I mean, they do anyway. But yeah. Lonesome River Band, everybody's using pickups now. Really? And the, the technology's gotten to where, you know, it sounds good. Yeah. Like, I feel like, you know, back in the day when Doc Watson had a pickup in his guitar, I was always like, oh, but I really wish I didn't have to hear the sounds, pickup, you know? I just want to hear Doc's like guitar. Yeah. But nowadays, yeah. you know, it's really gotten pretty well refined. Well, so. the Dobro has that whole Jerry Douglas technology, that crazy thing that he invented with Bill Vorndick. Or they, they didn't invent it, but that whole thing. Does the banjo have an equivalent of that? Uh, I don't know. It's so. like this modeling thing where you can plug basically anything in and, and it okay. sounds like Jerry well, Douglas' The, the Tone Dexter is like that. Okay, it has cool. the ability to model different mics. So that's we did that one day. We just sat in here and tried out different mics. And we've got, so we've got these different options for different sounds. Amazing. Yeah. Well, um, thank you yeah. for talking thank to me you. today. I mean, we could <laughs> really go on all it. afternoon. Yeah, we'll have to do yeah, it again yeah. next time at your place. Yeah. Yeah, you should come by sometime and check it out. Yeah. It's a good little scene over there. I would love to. And you're always welcome here anytime you want to come hang out. Oh, thank you. Seriously. Yeah, but this is a very magical room to me. It's magical to me, too, mm-hmm. if these walls could talk, right? No doubt. Yeah. I love talking to you, Steve. Let me just you too. Uh, text, let those guys know. Just-
Thank you so much for tuning in and listening, everybody. Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast is produced at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville, Tennessee. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist for Spotify and Apple Music at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thank you again to our sponsors this season, Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra 1964, The Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resonator Guitars, and The Hen House Hang. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Over and out. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.